we've got renewables getting more expensive for the first time in recent memory and uh, energy security complicating the, the climate agenda. All these things, you could find threads that are going back in some cases years or decades, but they've all come to the fore now. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. As the year closes out, we take a look back at what developed in 2022. We saw progress on some decarbonization efforts, along with a new focus on energy security following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What followed was a European energy crisis and rising prices globally, a price cap on Russian oil exports, and an OPEC decision to cut production. We also saw the passing of the IRA in the United States and some new issues coming out of the COP meetings last month. To talk us through these developments and their significance as we go into 2023, Joseph Mikett spoke with Kevin Book and Liam Denning. Kevin is a managing director at Clearview Energy Partners, as well as a senior associate with our program. And Liam is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering energy and commodities. Both are keen observers of energy markets and of energy and climate policies. Here's Joseph to kick off that discussion. So I'm excited to talk to you guys today about the last year in energy and climate. It's a special episode for me to record. As I said during the prep, you know, this is my first full year here at, at CSIS and I have my own portfolio and, and my own desire to learn about energy security, energy markets has been wholly satisfied by the informational needs that we've faced this year and just like incredible changes that we've witnessed in markets. So I look forward to talking to both of you about reflections on the last year and, and try and come up with at least some perspective on the things we've learned. So thank you very much for joining us. When you look at the last year, it's impossible to start without thinking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the aftermath of that on geopolitics, on energy markets. And there seems to be this question in the air everywhere I go. What is the effect of this invasion on, on energy transition? So maybe a good place to start would be to ask both of you, do you think that this answer is sign definite? The challenges that we're facing now in energy markets and, and the aftermath of the Russian invasion, do you think this will speed responses to climate change and diversification of the energy system or no? Kevin, you want to start? Uh, sure. Well, so decarbonization was going to be hard enough without deglobalization. I think that's probably where I would begin. So much of what we've seen this year, Joseph, is a trend that began before this year. So, you know, if you ask where are we, we're where we were, but faster, maybe sooner in a lot of respects. But I guess looking ahead or even looking back, context is important. You know, a few years ago, we, we had Iran striking Saudi sovereign producing and processing facilities, the biggest demand collapse in, in history. Globalization has been going in reverse for some time. Now we've got fires, freezes and floods impacting producing infrastructure. You add on to that, uh, we're now voluntarily foregoing Russian fossil energy. We've got renewables getting more expensive for the first time in recent memory and uh, energy security complicating the, the climate agenda. All these things, you could find threads that are going back in some cases years or decades, but they've all come to the fore now. And the new rules of how this gets done seem to have gone to government, much like a number of the other crises, the financial crisis, 9-11, the COVID. Government has stepped in to take a bigger role, and that seems to be happening now. One of the most amazing things to me is how, how quickly, how versatile the Biden administration was in figuring out how to get fossil fuels into the market after campaigning on how to get them out. We're on Energy 360 right now, but this was really, Joseph, I think to close the thought, the year of uh, Energy Negative 160. Uh, where LNG played a starring role in connecting U.S. resources 
to overseas markets in need. But wow, what a year to be doing energy policy. Liam, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, like on all this interventionism and, and how it might be steering the global energy system. I mean, I would, I would echo some of what Kevin was saying. Certainly this unraveling of, of the, the paradigm we've known for, for several decades in terms of, you know, primacy of markets and government getting out of the way of business, that has definitely been accelerated by the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. You know, for me, this has been such a year of surprises, which I know sounds kind of banal, but it's surprising on several levels. You know, it was surprising that outside of the US intelligence community, I think the invasion itself was a surprise. Then the the degree of Western unity in the response was a surprise. I, I was much more pessimistic about how far Europe and the US would hang together in terms of responding to the invasion. The other thing that surprised me is what happened with the oil market. I mean, the fact that we've come through this year and it's looking like oil is going to end down for the year. You know, I just saw today, um, it looks like the median gasoline price is now back below three bucks. We're at two ninety nine today. Who would have predicted that even two months ago? You know, two months ago, the, the forecast for the fourth quarter was still triple digit oil prices. And then at the same time, we've seen, you know, battery prices. I think Bloomberg NEF has been tracking it for 12 years now. It's, you know, reversed their year in, year out decline. And this extends, this also extends, I, I think, to the equity market. One of the things I track is the weight of the oil and gas sector in the S&P 500. And again, if you had told me that at the end of a year where there's a land war in Europe, OPEC is doing its, its damnedest to keep prices up, you have the energy sector barely nudging back above 5% of the S&P 500. You know, the last time we had a comparable crisis, say the Arab Spring, it was at 10, 11, 12%. It's been amazing to me to see how that sector has not attracted the general investor in the way we might have expected even, you know, two, three, four years ago. So yeah, there is so much to unpack. Uh, whether it speeds up the transition, just to go back to your original question, you know, I think, again, it's a very unsatisfying both, right? Because on the one hand, if this speeds up government intervention and we have governments that are minded to do things to speed up that transition, then yes, it speeds it up. On the other hand, the inflationary effects of it, you know, just in terms of take it to its most basic level, just in terms of what it's done to US Treasury yields and look at what that has done to investment into the clean tech sector, both in terms of public valuations and the chilling effect it's had on venture capital flowing into clean tech. That's working in the opposite direction. Could I just amplify one thing Liam mentioned is on investment for clean tech. You know, the European Union is struggling with an acute energy shortage, a real problem, and one that we don't face in ocean away with our our light and our heat and our endlessly open air conditioning in our stores in summers with the doors open, you know, gushing into the street. But they decided that energy markets weren't efficient uh, or right. And the price premia that were going to renewables had to be capped so that this would prevent end users from being put out of economic business. And the price cap at $180 per megawatt hour is above the inframarginal break-evens for almost all the sources they capped. But that's not really the problem. The problem is the what comes next part, right? When government starts stepping in, they create a risk premium. And how you express that, you know, there's all sorts of people who will talk about political risk premium. Is it in a is it a coefficient applied to the revenue line? Is it premium you put into the discount rate? Whatever it is, it means that your return is less because you don't know what you're getting. And so you're going to put less in. So we dealing with an investment problem. 
government getting bigger in general and doing more radical things isn't necessarily going to encourage that investment. So one of the things I've been told approximately a thousand times this year is that energy security is back on the policy agenda or it's back on the agenda more generally. And I struggle to figure out how to measure that. I can sort of offer anecdotes. Obviously, in Europe, energy security is a critical concern. But a lot of what I hear is concerns about price. How do you guys think about this return of energy security as a driving force for public policy, its return as a topic of concern, if it ever really went away? Well, you are still an energy security professional at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I don't think it ever went away in your building. It went away in Washington, D.C. in a political manner. Once we got to the point where prices didn't freak out politicians, energy security, as it was expressed in our politics and the policy within those political confines, really did drop out of the mix. It got hard for industry to get a hearing about things that were inconvenient on investment because there were enough molecules and electrons for everybody. President Biden campaigned on the greenest agenda in history, and no one was scared of what he was proposing because prices were low. I think you can argue that energy security, the way it was perceived through the lens of Washington, D.C., had it retreated to the back burner, if not entirely off the stove. On the other hand, it was more acute and remains so as a matter of real concern in net importing economies. The U.S. is a net exporter, about 4% exports as a share of uh, consumption. The EU is about a 62% net importer as a share of consumption. And the Asian G7 economies and comparables are upwards of 90% in some cases. That incredible import reliance is energy insecurity. And another way to think about it is also in terms of energy intensities, which is usually a measure of efficiency, right? How many BTUs does it take to get your GDP? But the way to think about it from a security perspective is, well, if you need that GDP for your economy to, to continue prospering and keeping your social contracts with your, your constituencies, you better have that energy. And so the higher energy intensity economies are also more at risk. We're relatively low in the deck, you know, the G7 in general, the OECD writ large. And so it's easy for us to pretend that it wasn't an issue, but I think it was very much an issue, a real one for importing economies like China the whole time. Just to weigh in from my side, I think the conversation, at least among the industry folks that I speak to, I don't think it ever really went away, but I do think the conversation has changed. The obvious reason is is that we've gone from a, a narrative which was all around abundance, and particularly in the US context, you know, too much of everything, which is one reason why we're seeing the industry barely able to get about 5% of the S&P 500, to the industry basically trying to reassert itself and say, you know, look what you made us do. We've underinvested, now beholden to OPEC, we're struggling with this Russian invasion. And yet, at the same time, they're struggling to really get back to what might have come before. And for various reasons, one is the legacy of abundance. You know, the industry has really more cash than it knows what to do with. But rather than reinvesting it, it's just paying it out. I mean, one of my favorite stats is, you know, if you track the two big remaining integrated US oil majors, you go back five or six years, for every dollar they were paying out to investors, they were reinvesting five. And now we've just seen them announce their budgets for the next five years. And the larger of them is essentially saying it will buy back enough stock to the equivalent of two years worth of its CapEx budget. Over the five years, it will basically reinvest $1 for every dollar it pays out. And if you think about it, in a world where we're essentially saying that we're kind of living hand to mouth in terms of where our supply is, is coming from, all that kind of narrative which is out there, that's kind of crazy. I mean, these companies have access 
to the single most prolific growth area in the oil business of the past decade, the US onshore, but are not doing it. And clearly the world has changed in terms of what it will finance in oil and gas. And we can blame that on various things. You know, one is that legacy effect. The industry will tell you it's because Washington is getting in the way. Other investors will tell you that they struggle to take more than a 10-year view. And so therefore, they only want to invest in the, in the shortest term projects. So I do think energy security has reasserted itself, but it hasn't reasserted itself in ways that I would recognize from just a few years ago, at least in terms of the reaction of financial markets. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about this uh, over the year many times, Liam. It's There's this perplexing situation we find ourselves in, especially when oil prices were high earlier in the year and the sense that markets were tight anyway. There was deep uncertainty about how much Russia was going to continue to be an exporter into the global economy or into the global oil market, and that this underinvestment in production was, whether it was coming from ESG concerns or fears of regulation, was really going to cause critical problems, right? And you, you kind of heard this from various parts of the energy industry. And yet you don't see, as this sort of risk is highlighted, anybody looking to take strong advantage of it, right? Like somebody ought to be investing to try and take advantage of these things. And that doesn't seem to be quite what's happening. I have yet to come up with a satisfactory explanation for the rhetoric I hear and the business choices that I see or perceive. It's, I mean, just to offer a very simplistic answer, it may just be a factor of time. The hangover from, just to keep it focused on the US for a minute, the hangover from the US shale boom may take longer to, to work itself out in terms of what investors are willing to finance. You know, I have a very good friend who's a, an energy-focused asset manager down in Houston, and I can remember him saying a couple of years ago, this is a five-year process, which I thought sounded a bit too long, given how short memories can be in the investing community. But it turns out it may have been right. It may be that it's going to be a rough ride in terms of generally high and volatile energy prices before the generalist investor is willing to come back and say, okay, we need to actually invest in this as a, as a growth story. Now, having said that, the longer time goes on, the, you know, if we see a resumption of, of deflation in clean tech costs, if we see today's political alignment continue, it does get harder and harder to take that 10 plus year view to invest. But we do, do we even know what global energy markets will look like 10 years from now? They look profoundly different today than they do at the start of last year. I tried to make a list as we started our conversation for today. We have an oil price cap, which is being set on Russian exports. Uh, you've got the real breakdown of Russian and European energy trade, which even if the war in Ukraine were to end tomorrow, I don't think we'd ever go back to that being a, um, at the same volume it, it was before. It's unlikely you know, that Russia is going to play as significant a role in the global energy system as it, as it has in the past. I think it'll degrade over time. And I don't think we necessarily have great intuitions about how a more fractured, as Kevin said, deglobalized energy system is going to meet the needs of the planet or of, of demand going forward. I'm not sure we have a good sense of, of how investment and balances are going to work in that world. Well, Joseph, the conversation we've had so far, I think, is very telling in one respect. Uh, you did it. I did it. Liam did it. We all talked about the supply side. And we didn't really focus much on the demand side, which is what energy, in the end, our policy and our thinking about energy is all about because we use it for other things. So the electrification process, creating more demand for generation and the wires to deliver it is probably one of the, the bigger challenges of that next decade. And in a world of intervention, electricity markets are no stranger to structured government approaches to allocation. 
So that's not going to necessarily be inconsistent with a world of, of cap guns firing everywhere, as I like to call them. But the, the other thing is that as we look at the overall consumption patterns of a deglobalizing world, one of the things that we're wringing out of the world is the efficiency of scale and Ricardian advantage. That implies a lot of new construction that in its own right, building separate plant capacity should be demand stimulative, uh, assuming economic norms are obtained and we don't end up with a crushing recession. And as we build that capacity, we're also building in inefficiency, which suggests in the more intermediate term, a below trend growth rate of demand because the below trend growth rate of GDP would imply that. So that's what this overcapacity boom of energy security could be bringing us. We're now taking some of the edginess of the, the tightly geared system that we optimized over decades of globalization out, buffering it. That implies weaker returns at the margin and less incentive to invest in the long run. But in the short run, probably real opportunity if you can deliver BTUs soon for all the plant capacity and intrinsic new consumption that will come with it. So it, it's sort of a two-tailed story in sequence, up then down. And uh, if I were thinking about a 20-year investment, that might give me pause. Well, but that causes, that brings to mind the other major change that we've had, at least here in Washington, which was the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an attempt to try and stimulate a bunch of investment in low-carbon technologies here in the United States. Long-term extension of tax credits for wind and solar technology, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen. Is that what we're going to have to see out of governments in, in the world that you paint, Kevin? We're just going to have to make it really, really easy to flow capital into the energy system? Secretary Granholm spoke to this at the National Petroleum Council meeting on the 14th and said she celebrated that it was all carrots, is how she put it, in the IRA, and uh, with the exception of the methane fee, which she pointed out. And also the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the CHIPS Act. It was all carrots. It was a carrot salad. So that's great for rich governments. It's what rich governments can do, particularly this rich government. It's not so easy. You know, the idea that there's a CBAM coming out of Europe reflects that some of those economies have to use vinegar instead of sugar to try to get emissions reductions because they can't simply fund endless largesse. And so that's not necessarily the solution we're going to look at. One of the interesting things historically about our carrots is that they're more like loaves and fishes than carrots. In 2008, the, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, the bill that brought us TARP, also included an eight-year extension, long-term extension of the ITC and opened it up to utilities. The Joint Committee on Taxation costed it at $3.2 billion over a 10-year interval in foregone government tax revenue. And in the eight years through the duration of the credit extension, it came in at $12.2 billion. So you had almost a 4x effect because free money is popular. So, I mean, what we're talking about has limited nexus, this sort of free money outgrow expectations and to be able to pull it off. And even then, it's not clear that, that that's gap closing. If every economy could still do it, maybe. But it undercuts, this is a point Liam made in a great article about refineries in California. Now, I should let Liam talk about his own article, but it was great. It was that, the, you know, if you undercut the need for refineries, you'll go dark before you go green. You have this incumbent legacy infrastructure that no longer works because it was tightly geared. And a small drop in capacity utilization leads to an enormous drop in profitability, and you just shut it down. So it, the government steps in big. Watch what steps back. I think that one of the things I saw this year, whether it was in the refinery challenges, which we would love to hear Liam's perspective on, but the whole of what you would call like mid-transition infrastructure seems to be it's going to be at risk, right? We're going to have to pay more to have people keep things online at lower than total capacity. And we don't know whether that's going to require government intervention or changes in prices and markets. 
But it does seem like there's real energy security risks that this last year kind of can clue us into and prepare for over the next couple of decades. Think about pipelines that run at partial capacity, refineries that run at partial capacity. Liam, how are you kind of thinking about that challenge or what do you see governments and companies around the world starting to do? I mean, I think the early signs are that it reinforces this trend of more government intervention. You know, Kevin mentioned the, the refineries example in California, and you can also see that developing in places like the UK, where I think, you know, if the UK is serious about its ban on gasoline vehicles, the, the government is going to have to make a decision probably sometime this decade as to whether it's just going to allow all of the UK's remaining six refineries to close down and rely on the Dutch and the Americans or whether they'll just pay them to keep those open. And we've seen the Australians already do that, for example, with a small surcharge to keep their last two refineries open. We saw it in California where Governor Newsom instituted various stopgap measures, you know, to keep old gas-fired plants on, to reward people to run generators in early September when there's a risk of blackouts. And what it really comes down to, I think, particularly in the context of, of electricity markets, is, you know, you, you talked about it, that, that mid-transition, what some people are calling the messy middle. You're not just swapping from one kind of technology to another. You're swapping a whole kind of business model, right? Because it's not just that, you know, renewables are intermittent. It's also that they have zero marginal cost. And that upsets a whole way of running the wholesale power market that is predicated on everyone having a positive marginal cost and you coming up with a merit order and, and that sort of thing. And I think the only way to get around that and to essentially make sure we have redundancy. And I think that's what we're really talking about here. You know, do we have enough redundancy to handle this enormous swap over in, in fixed assets? You know, in the old days, we just used regulated utilities, right? They just took ratepayer money and they put it into a plant that might only run for 10 hours a year, but when you needed it, it was there. And now, you know, we're less inclined to do that sort of thing. So we come up with, you know, capacity payments or Californian stopgap measures, or maybe other kinds of surcharges or mandates that we're yet to see, but I think they are coming. Just a, a strong agreement. I, it's very hard to break markets and expect them not to iterate within their narrower confines. When you create new boundaries or crowd out investment, you shouldn't be surprised by the result. One of the things I've enjoyed most is this series of pieces that Liam has written over the fall is the US has sort of grown up in some ways this year as an energy exporter, right? Using the SPR to inject oil into markets to cool prices. There's been rising tensions with OPEC trying to figure out what does the US want out of global energy policy? Liam, I'd be really happy to to hear your thoughts on where you're at now at the end of the year. What has the Biden administration accomplished? And what do you think it means for the next few years as the U.S. is trying to navigate the international politics of, of energy? I think if I was going to point to one thing that it's accomplished is it has broken the longstanding taboo on using the SPR, right? You know, just from a not taking a, a political point of view, but just coming at it from, you know, someone who's looked at the oil market from a, a kind of a financial and economic point of view, the SPR was always dead oil. It was a number you ignored. 
right? You, you factored it out. Maybe now you don't. Maybe it's now a live player in the market. And that obviously comes with all sorts of trepidations because the idea that Uncle Sam is now, you know, an active participant in oil markets seems a bit scary. And yet at the same time, one is, I think anyone saying, oh, well, this will politicize the SPR is maybe overstating the case. The SPR is inherently change. Two, you could see it playing a useful role. And I do think the announcement in October, whereby they talked about buying oil forward on fixed contracts to try and encourage production, in theory, could work quite well. Now, thus far, it's not terribly encouraging that the proposal is vague and doesn't seem to be actually going anywhere. And I think that's not just bad because, oh, it's a missed opportunity. It's bad because it will poison the politics of the SPR even further. And I do think the Biden administration is really in danger of leaving a a quite poisonous legacy for the SPR if it throws out this suggestion and then simply does nothing with it. Because I think it will will take a a bunch of, of market participants to, you know, whose cynicism hardly needs encouraging and just reinforce it further. I think the issue is Uncle Joe, Liam, not Uncle Sam, right? The Uncle Sam part has always been there. The SPR petroleum account exists to take the proceeds of sales for the repurchase of crude. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, what they changed was the ability to contract forward on a fixed price basis so that they could, in theory, stimulate it or more likely bring forward, as I think you and I have agreed, supply that would otherwise have come, but maybe a little bit sooner. That's great. But the issue, as you say, it's the it's the president's control. And one of the things that really distinguished what the president did here is he said that he was doing it to reduce prices for Americans. If you go back to the Obama administration, when we were the sort of the early heady days of, of energy independence, thinking at least, the theory was that the SPR would transform into a supply to the world, new maritime capacity to ship it out and not to become what, as I think Liam suggested, it always has been, which is a tool that can be accessed to lower prices in in a moment of political need. But no, in November of 2021, the president said exactly that, and he said it repeatedly afterwards. Owned the price. Dangerous political choice. Weird. If you look at the history of past presidents who tried to, to duck it, arguing that they're not in the oil market, so they can't do it. President Biden said not only is he in the oil market, he's buying and selling. He's two ways at the desk, and he's he's ready to keep things going. Now, if you pan back a little bit, I think you mentioned the G7 price cap, and you ask, so where are we exactly in the oil market? You know, it's a bit of the, the mouse looking to the elephant and feeling like it's in charge for the OECD economies and the G7 that have been so afraid of supply being in the control of other players to start talking about what price, at what price it can be acquired. But here we are. We're in a moment where uh, the idea that the big governments can get into markets and become real players is starting to permeate. And if it were really true to the point where reporters would start agglomerating as they do in Vienna, in Brussels, for the purposes of the G7 uh, price setting meeting, which of course would be a Europe fight between uh, Western and Eastern countries, then we would be in a, in a new world of the West projecting economic force into oil markets that really hasn't existed in some time, certainly not since the 1960 beginning of OPEC. And I'm not sure that we can think of government reserves as benign or off the balance sheet at all in that capacity. No, not at all. Because once you're in the market, you're in the market. And if you've got an investment, you're going to try to make it work. And if you have a goal on price politically, you're going to try to make it work. It means that the old rules are over. And I take some comfort in this, by the way. There are, there are old timers with 50 years of experience. We don't have those. But their rules no longer apply. Good for us. Good for everyone. Do you share Liam's concern that if the US government is not 
dealing on both ends of the price spectrum. So selling high and then and then putting forward contracts out at lower prices now that they sort of sour the the future of the SPR politically. Buybacks have been an issue for the whole existence of the SPR. They weren't really buybacks, they were buys. And the question was whether purchases would skew market outcomes. From the very start, the acquisition process included provisos that said you shouldn't do this in a way that's going to meaningfully raise prices or distort prices. So that's not news, but trying again, what they've done is they've turned it on its head. And instead of trying to avoid having a price impact, they've now said that we're trying to have a price impact with the SPR. Quite the opposite of, of trying to avoid it. We want producers to know that we're going to raise the price of oil when it falls doing this. Well, having said it, they'd better do it if they intend for it to be effective. If, they, if it was really a talking point rather than an action plan, I think we'll know soon enough because the prices are calling. Right. And I, I haven't seen much evidence yet that industry sees that as a credible promise, but maybe they have to start making contracts and then people will rush to the opportunity. Look, it's December. We're coming up on holidays. If there's ever been a time for something like this to happen, uh, you know, a Friday afternoon in December before a holiday weekend would be my choice. <laughs> what have I missed? What did you guys see that in the past year? I can raise one. So a sector that, you know, frankly, is just deathly boring most of the time and therefore tends to fly under the radar is the utility sector. And I'm interested at what's happening there I'm kind of at, at the subnational level, right? Because these are very much kind of state entities. And I think there's a, a few things that are going on there that are going to be very interesting. I think one is, you know, we've seen the end of the shale dividend for the US power sector. You know, average gas prices doubled this year. They'll probably probably soften a bit next year, but we're not going back to $2 gas anytime soon. And we've also seen interest rates go up. So I think what we had over the past decade was, was really kind of a halcyon period for regulated utilities because they could do what they like to do best, which is to put money in the ground and earn a regulated return on it. And that regulated return didn't drop even as interest rates were dropping. So the spread was increasing. And they could also invest all that money, which then feeds into bills, securing the knowledge that the half of the bill that deals with generation costs was going down because of what was happening with gas prices. Now, all of that is reversing. Gas prices are going up. The investment needs are still there. If anything, they're getting more intense because of transition policies. Meanwhile, the spreads that they were earning on their regulated returns are being compressed because interest rates are rising. So it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see how that dynamic plays out between utilities that still want to grow earnings at 4 to 6% a year and regulators who are going to have to confront the reality of both sides of the electricity bill rising. The other aspect of this that interests me in particular is actually Texas. I was looking the other day at the solar and battery project queue for the country. And it's really remarkable how Texas is, you could almost imagine, is poised to overtake California at some point in the next four or five years in terms of battery and solar deployment. And this for a state which politically at least is not what you would call, you know, a huge advocate for that at the state level. And yet it is just going on because of, you know, economic forces. And, and I'll leave you with, with one last anecdotal piece of evidence on that, which is, you know, it was 
interesting to me that one of the two largest merchant generators in Texas about a week or two ago announced it was buying a company that essentially, you know, gives you software to manage opening your garage door and running your thermostats. And for me, I looked at that and I thought, hmm, they can't be too optimistic about the prospect of further electricity price spikes in Texas, which is where they earn most of their profits at the moment, which suggests to me that that power market, the amount of battery and solar capacity that's going into it is about to turn it on its head. It's hard to resist the everything's big in Texas, but you know, it is an energy state and it doesn't really matter if you have a favorable environment to build and install. You know, I suspect we'll see a lot of battery plant capacity and mineral processing capacity continue to show up in Texas and local regulators creating a favorable environment for business eventually creates a favorable environment for green business when it's a business. So not a shock at all. But I think we still underappreciate electricity and its importance in our daily lives. Certainly, its its importance will grow as we electrify transportation and as we de-diversify our fuel mix to some extent in the process of doing so. The end result of all these extra batteries available in cars as grid resources, I mean, you'll get my battery when you take my gun, I think is what they would say in Texas. I'm not sure that's going to work as well as the policymakers try to imagine. But at least in theory, there's capacity that comes on stream, but there's a gulf in the middle, right, where we have this rising electricity importance without necessarily the the resilience or the capacity available in all places at all times. And if you look at every time we have a blackout, just how chaotic it is, right, you can unplug a clock and time just keeps going forward. But when you unplug a city, it goes backward fast. That's the real problem we're looking at. And if it were just about us, I think we would be pretty good at this. We become a lot more energy efficient as an economy and we can add electricity demand without necessarily cutting ourselves off. But we do live in a world where we're undergoing fairly significant conflict with actors at a state and non-state level, and the risks to our grid remain intact. You know, I think that, again, as we continue this progress towards electrification, this will become a recurrent theme. Are we secure enough everywhere? It isn't just the big utilities with the well-armored SCADA layers that can protect all their operational infrastructure, but also the other grid resources that are attached where nobody's changed the password on the router on their panel, those kinds of things that we have to be thinking about. Well, it's not even that. I mean, I I think what Liam says is really compelling to me, that as costs rise on both sides of of the ledger for utilities, a lot of the promise of electrification, which is lower cost, easy, cleaner services, could be harder to achieve. And I'm not at all convinced that we have a planning system that is like, going to be able to deliver the promised benefits of electrification, right? You look at this, you know, the electricity transmission to me seems like the best case example where it's a clear public good for most of the things that we want to see out of the electricity system, right? If you can build big interregional lines, you know, the case now is generally made about bringing renewables from where they're most cheaply produced to the demand centers on the coasts. But you could equally think about, you know, locating uh, carbon capture and storage facilities near saline reservoirs. There's, it just gives you an ability to cross large distances with a commodity that people want to buy. You can lower the system's cost. You can increase its reliability and its resilience. There's immense good that comes from being able to build and site that stuff. And yet, like every incentivized actor in the system is not incentivized to help capture these benefits, right? Utilities are skeptical because they want to build their own capacity. They want to guarantee their own security using existing business models. We're not yet at a place 
where either the government is strong enough that it can just say, reorient the power market in this way, or where the market is strong enough that it's allowed to make a lot of these decisions by itself because of the intermediate institutions that, that sit along the pathway. I think we're going to have the same challenges when we think about building more resilient power systems, uh, how much people are willing to pay, what policy instruments are in place for that as well. I think those kinds of challenges are going to be bigger and bigger going over time. And it's hard to know how we get unstuck, right? That's not even permitting reform. It's like a total reform of how the markets are structured and how we incentivize development. So you're telling me we can't, we can't have it all cheaply all the time, whenever we want, as clean as it gets? I mean, I think like if you got six engineers together to try and like build the cheapest system, it's very hard for them to do that in a top-down fashion. Although obviously you're forgetting fusion and cheap clean power forever. Who could forget that? We're about 17, 18 years since I remember reading an article about paint-on solar coatings. Remember that? You guys all remember that, right? The entire built environment becomes generating and that's the end of it, right? We don't need to start talking about OPEC. Uh, we need to start talking about where we're going to get all the sand to make all this uh, photovoltaic adhesive material. But here we are. It's not there yet. The built environment's still receiving lots of sunlight, but we're not converting it to power. I don't know. I don't know how long you're planning to keep doing this. I hope we get to do this for a long time. This is fun. I uh, enjoy talking to the two of you a great deal. But I don't think we have to worry too much about our fusion conversation in 2023. I hope it comes along quickly because I'm I'm retiring at net zero. So... I might have to sit in this chair for a really long time. <laughs> I mean, Kevin, we talked about this the other day, but it does strike me that, you know, if you, if you think about the most transformational things in energy, you know, technology-wise the past couple of decades, they've all basically just been tweaks of existing things like fracking and cheaper solar panels and cheaper batteries and, you know, genuine, honest-to-God, like, laboratory breakthroughs had been pretty rare. And I, you know, I sort of take, obviously, that sounds a bit pessimistic for, for stuff like fusion, but I also take some optimism from that, that, you know, there are off-the-shelf solutions to things if, if we can deploy our resources efficiently uh, and target real near-term progress on things instead of simply putting all our faith in some breakthrough. The, the other thing that struck me about fusion is the timeline on it. You know, if you optimistically suggest that fusion will be commercialized within, say, 20 to 30 years, it does seem to me that that would be coming into the market around the same time that we expect mass deployment of hydrogen and mass deployment of carbon capture. And it sort of amuses me in some ways to think that we're even now like getting into the process of creating a new round of stranded assets as all these things fight to decarbonize the world. So you're telling me we can run the direct air capture facilities using fusion. And uh, I get it. I see what you're seeing. I see what you did there. And produce hydrogen when, when we're not doing that. Right. Yeah. I get it. Well, you guys have been really generous with your time. I don't want to take up your whole day. I do wonder if it's easy to look at the headlines and say these are the big things that happened this year. But if you think there are potentially overlooked stories from the last year, it might be interesting to close with things that are in the back of your mind that a year from now we might be talking about more. This is one of those don't all talk at once moments. Mine's e-bikes. Do tell. You know, one of the things that is increasingly on, on the radar of people here in Washington is critical mineral supply chains, consumer preference for EVs has generally led the market toward large batteries that are going to take up a lot of mineral resources. I don't know if I'm just sort of sampling the neighborhoods and the and the high density urban areas in which I live, but e-bikes solve a lot of mobility challenges with low mineral needs. They don't take a lot of energy to run. People seem to enjoy them. And I'm sort of interested in the idea that something other than what we predict will drive energy transition and transportation 
will and, and e-bikes or other modalities of mobility are interesting to me, not just in the United States, but around the world, right? I was struck by the EIA's estimate that 1.2 million barrels a day of oil demand have been displaced by electric two-wheelers in India. And, and the idea that, that those kinds of new technologies could really change the picture for energy demand and for energy transition to me is appealing. It's one of those underappreciated things for sure, because if you're you're looking at the far-flung suburban areas where so many Americans still live, I'm not sure there's the same support for e-bikes there that, that urbanites have, and it's easy to overlook some of those folks. I would offer a, a very small thing, but it could be big in the end. We put a price on greenhouse gas emissions this year when we passed the Inflation Reduction Act's methane fee into the law. And if you take the $1,500 per metric ton of methane and divide by the 25 global warming potential multiple that the EPA is still using, you end up with a $60 metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. That is not necessarily the same thing as having an emissions trading scheme or a national price on carbon, but it is the first time that the U.S. federal government has put a national price on an emission in a way that I think we can point to in law. I'm going to suggest a couple of things. One is, and this kind of goes to what we saw happen with um, Sri Lanka earlier this year, when it was just simply overwhelmed by the rising cost of fuel. And that is the Bank of International Settlements made some interesting comments earlier this year about how the dollar was becoming more positively correlated with the oil price. And the reason I find that interesting is emerging markets have, you know, for a while now been the be all and end all of oil demand forecasts. And it does strike me that there is a headwind potentially building there in a world where the dollar is more positively correlated with oil, potentially, if, if that's a trend that continues, and a world in which we're seeing global supply chains unravel or fray, however you want to characterize it. What does that mean for emerging market oil demand? Because I think the standard model is simply that population times prosperity will ensure that even as oil demand declines in the OECD countries, it will be more than offset to some degree by the inexorable rise of demand elsewhere. I have long thought that longer term, there are problems with that model simply because a lot of those countries are also the ones that are most prone to economic dislocation arising from climate change over the medium to longer term. But I think that's another challenge that is potentially building, another repercussion of this realignment of global energy markets. The second thing, and this is really just more of a puzzling thing for me because I haven't looked at it closely enough yet, is what looks like an apparent revival of deep water drilling, which I think a few years ago, the narrative was that that part of the industry was essentially not dead, but its time was over as a growth area. And it's been remarkable to see a big jump in the day rates of drill ships this year, particularly for ultra deep water drilling. The forecasts for growth in production from deep water fields have turned around and are now rising again. And I'm puzzled by it because, you know, deep water drilling is the ultimate long-term bet on where oil prices and demand are going. And I, I felt that the combination of various factors, you know, around climate change, around investor skepticism with the industry would keep that from coming back, but it, it doesn't seem to be the case. So we'll have to have another one of these. I think, for the underappreciated issues, Joseph. Yeah, it's challenging. I want to thank you guys for your time, for all I've learned from you this year, and I hope you have a great holiday. Thanks to Kevin and Liam for joining Energy 360 again at the end of this year. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts, find us at csis.org, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening.